you know, I always refer to these animals as refugees, you know, because the, the definition of a refugee is somebody whose homeland is no longer available to them. We have to change business as usual uh, into something completely different and make companies much more responsible for what their impacts on the ground. It's time to change the world. There's got to be a better way. It's time for something better. You feel like you can't really make a difference, but the fact is that you can. We're telling the stories of people who are changing the world and how you can help. You know, we just need more companies that are out there solving these problems. Businesses, nonprofits, artists, and individuals who have found a problem and then created a solution. If we want to have real impact, we have to do it together. You'll come away from every episode with action steps you can take to be part of that solution. We're never going to feel satisfied and happy if we just stay the same. We can each change the world every single day. People can actually come together and build a future for themselves along with other people. Our daily actions have a massive impact. So what will we do about it? We can remake the world. Because guess what? We can. Hi, everyone. I'm Nathan Gardner, and this is We Can Remake the World, a podcast about people who are changing the world and how you can help. I was reading an article today about the smog over Beijing and the air quality there, and how the air has been so much cleaner over the past year due to less cars on the roads and factories temporarily shutting down. We've seen similar stories in cities like Los Angeles and others. There were photos which showed the air pollution just before the pandemic, and then a side-by-side with a photo of the air during the pandemic. And it was amazing to see how much more clear the skies were during lockdown. And this got me thinking about the impact that we have every day on the world around us that we might not even be aware of or think of as we move through the day. We often talk on this show about the impact that each of us can have through our actions by how we live, what we buy, how we behave, the organizations we support. This is the impact that we're consciously choosing. But I also think it's interesting and important to think about the impact that we're having that maybe we're not as aware of. Because every day we are having an impact, whether we acknowledge it or not. We live in a global economy, which almost every part of the world is plugged into at this point. When you buy a chocolate bar in Germany, you're impacting the rainforests of Indonesia because of what's in that chocolate bar and how it's made. Every cup of coffee you buy in Seattle is shaping the lives of coffee farmers, growers, producers in South America, Africa, and Asia. This truly is a global community through business. And I started to think about how we can come to terms with and grapple with this invisible contribution that we're making every day as global citizens. What can we do to become more aware of our impact and of the options we have to make the best choices that are available to us? Choices which protect our planet and our people from harm. Choices which reflect our values and help to shape the world that we want to live in. Stay with us as we explore these questions and more today with Dr. Ian Singleton a zookeeper and conservationist working to preserve and protect the natural wonders in his part of the world. You may not know it, 
but every time you shop, you're probably having an impact on the rainforests of Indonesia. Don't believe me? Check your labels. If you see palm oil or palm kernel oil on the package of anything you're buying, you're supporting the palm oil industry, which is having a huge impact on Southeast Asia, and has been for decades. Some products with palm oil are lipstick, pizza dough, both fresh and frozen, shampoo, ice cream, laundry detergents, instant noodles, vegetable oil-based margarine, which is pretty much all margarine, chocolate, packaged cookies, and hundreds of other baked goods, packaged bread, peanut butter, and the list goes on and on. It's estimated that roughly 50% of all packaged goods in a grocery store, which is both food and not food, you know, cleaning products, contain palm oil. 50%. And it can appear on ingredient labels in more than 200 different forms. It won't just come out and say palm oil. Have you ever seen the words sodium lauryl sulfate on your shampoos or soap or cleaning ingredients? That's probably from palm oil. Just plain vegetable oil in any of your snack food ingredients lists? Also, probably palm oil. Products from Heinz ketchup to Girl Scout cookies use palm oil, and even organic food brands like Newman's Own and specialty products like Nutella. In 2019 alone, according to their own data, Starbucks used 10.5 million pounds of palm oil in its products globally. That's just one global company. Palm oil is cheap, it's effective at what it's used for, and the demand has only been going up. But if we're not careful, this comes at a cost. According to Global Forest Watch, Indonesia lost 16% of its forests between the years 2000 and 2018 to palm oil plantations, and nearby Borneo in Malaysia lost 39% in the same period of time. And these forests are almost as rich and biodiverse as the Amazon rainforest. Every piece of forest lost means something for the wild plants and animals living there. And if we don't make some changes, within a few decades, both of these ecosystems will disappear. Sumatran orangutans, native to Indonesia, are especially vulnerable, as they depend on the trees and forests to survive. That's where their habitat is, up in the trees. And that's exactly where palm oil producers want to be. But we, as consumers and global citizens, can help protect these animals and these habitats by shifting our habits and advocating for changes in the palm oil industry alongside countless scientists, nonprofits, and conservation organizations who are already starting to change the game here. We recently spoke with Dr. Ian Singleton, director of the Sumatran Orangutan Conservation Program, or SOCP for short, which is based on the Indonesian island of Sumatra. Dr. Singleton was recently recognized in late 2020 by the British Crown for his contributions to conservation over his over 30-year career working with and protecting orangutans, and he was also a featured expert in the Leonardo DiCaprio-produced climate change documentary called Before the Flood which was released a few years ago in 2016. In our conversation today, Ian takes us through what he and his team are doing in Indonesia to rebuild and protect orangutan populations who have been displaced by forest loss. Ian joined us from Sumatra on a stormy day, so you may notice some fuzzy sound here and there, but I think we fixed it for the most part. 
Dr. Singleton also gives us a window into how the global economy drives the worsening situation on the ground in Indonesia and what we can all do to be part of the solution. So I've got Dr. Ian Singleton, Conservation Director at the Sumatran Orangutan Conservation Program located in Sumatra in Indonesia with me. Thanks so much for your time today, Ian. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. So what I'd love to start with is, you know, some of the basics. Would you describe the conservation program, the SOCP for short, and give a little insight into the work that you're doing primarily? Um, yeah, I mean, they, we started what we call the SOCP back in 2001, um, and we try and tackle sort of all aspects of orangutan conservation here in the island of Sumatra. Um, we started off back then, the main goal was to develop a facility to deal with confiscated illegal pet orangutans, get them fit and well, uh, and reintroduce them back to the wild. Uh, we've been doing that now ever since, and we've, we're sort of halfway to establishing two new wild populations of the species down in Jambi and Janta. We've released about uh, over 300 individuals so far. Um, but we also do, you know, we manage a couple of field research stations. So we have students from overseas in Indonesia studying wild orangutan behavior and ecology. And we're quite active in sort of lobbying and advocacy to try and protect as much of the habitat as we possibly can and uh, explore ways of maybe even regaining habitat and reconnecting habitat. And of course, along with all that goes a lot of sort of education and uh, awareness raising work to try and uh, raise the profile of orangutans and again reinforce their protection. Yeah, absolutely. How did the SOCP begin and how did you get attracted to working with orangutans specifically? Would you mind just sharing a bit of how, how you got involved in this work? Uh, yeah, it's kind of a long story, but I'll try and keep it short. <laughs> um, I read some books by a famous author when I was a kid called Gerald Darrell. And he um, was a former zoo animal collector, and he established his own zoo in Jersey in the British Channel Islands and with, the, with the specific goal of conservation of endangered species, which was quite visionary back uh, then in the late 50s when he did that. And I read about that, and I really wanted to work there. I thought it would be a cool place to work. I, I ended up, I did an environmental science degree. I, when I left there, I, I went to work in zoos in the UK, which, and then I ended up uh, moving to Jersey in 1989, and that's when I started working with orangutans. So uh, when you're a zookeeper, you basically become passionate and nuts about whatever it is you're working with. And I, I didn't have a goal to work with orangutans, but that's what I ended up with. And of course, uh, the rest is history. But um, I did that. I was there for about eight years, and then I went to Indonesia a few times, learned a bit about the wild orangutans, and met some of the scientists. And in 1996, I had a chance to to leave the zoo and, and do a PhD, uh, studying wild orangutans here in Sumatra. I did that, and when I was finishing the write-up in 2000, I knew of a, a woman called Regina Frey, who had been working in Sumatra many years ago in the 70s, and actually founded one of the, the original orangutan reintroduction projects here. And she was keen to get back involved in that kind of work again, and had found some funding. Uh, and I sort of made myself, uh, made it known that I was interested to do that. Uh, I'd sort of worked with orangutans in zoos and I'd studied them in the wild. And, and this was a chance for me to sort of get more hands-on and, and active in the conservation. So uh, she accepted and uh, uh, I joined in 2001 and began the SOCP then. Hmm. 
What is it like to interact directly with orangutans on a regular basis? I mean, what what fascinates you about this animal and what was your experience like as you were getting to know them when you first began this work? And what's it like, again, just to interact with a species like the orangutan regularly? Uh, it's, a, it's a privilege, yeah. <clears throat> and, uh, but I, I came from uh, yeah, other zoos where I'd worked with like tigers and polar bears and zebras and things. And, uh, and yeah, like I say, you get a bit nuts about whatever it is you're working with. But once I started with the apes, something, I realized there was something different about them. And you if, you, if you treat them like animals, you don't get the respect back from them. But as soon as you realize that and you start to treat them like people, then all of a sudden you, you develop a relationship, you get mutual respect and trust, and, and, and uh, everybody seems to get along much more happily once you do that. And uh, the more you do work with them, the more you realize they really are like people. You know, they have all the same emotions, all the same kind of needs. They get upset when things go wrong. They're happy when things go well. Uh, and, um, yeah, as long as you, you treat them as equals, on a, you know, people, as a, an equal footing, uh, they will treat you the same. It's pretty awesome, yeah. One, but they, they really are like people, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I read as I was doing a little research that orangutan babies stay with their mothers for I think the first nine years of life on average that number may be higher or lower I'm sure um, there's some variation but I, I think the orangutan is known sort of physically and people have this image but I don't know that a lot is known about just their emotional sophistication or their intelligence um, and I'd love to hear just a little bit more maybe about uh, a couple specifics or details about you know their intelligence and, and their their emotional sensitivity uh, that you think would be helpful for people to understand about them. Yeah, it's very easy. I mean, the, I, I was lucky enough that I actually I hand-reared an infant orangutan when I was at Jersey. The, the mother died when she was two months old, and she became, uh, to all intents and purposes, my daughter. Yes, she lived with me for 24 hours a day for 18 months or so before I got her back with the others. And you do, you have to treat her exactly like you would a human child. You know, it's very difficult to leave the room without her screaming the house down, and she wakes up at 3 o'clock in the morning, all the same kind of needs and emotions. The intelligence that, you know, every now and again as well, I've been lucky enough to sort of work and get to know with sort of hundreds of orangutans over the years, you know, well over 400 individuals. And, and of those, uh, every now and again, you meet one that's a little bit special, you know, it stands out. And uh, one of those was an orangutan called Selatan uh, when I was in Jersey at the zoo there. And she, you know, I, I saw her one day, uh, she had a piece of bread. And she was breaking the bits off and she was throwing it around the corner of the, the room. Uh, and this little sparrow was popping up and picking the bread. And she was still, every time she threw a bit of bread, she threw it a little bit closer. And eventually she just reached out and grabbed it, you know. And then she came and traded it for a banana or something. But that was an orangutan that actually sort of thought about and planned a trap to catch another animal. And that's quite special. You know, that's real sort of forward thinking. Uh, and the same individual too. The the enclosure was like a concrete wall with metal bars on the roof and the side, and there were some ropes in there that were free hanging, so they, they were free at the end. And I remember her actually pushing the rope through the bars and dangling it above where the public was standing. And there was some kid trying to grab the end, and she was trying to catch it. You know? She was trying to catch this kid like like he would a crab at the at the, the harbour or something. You know? And luckily, luckily, the kids kept dropping off. But uh, real smart individual. And, and we, I've met one or two others as well with a similar kind of uh, abilities. 
Um, when it comes to emotions, we, again, years and years ago, we separated a, a young male about six, uh, about seven years old at the time from his, his mom and dad in order to send him to another zoo. And, and he took that really badly. He, he became extremely introverted. He would sleep uh, in his nest, cover himself over with a box all day. He didn't want anybody to see him. He would only come out at night and grab food and go back into his nest. And, you know, it's quite sad to see him do that. He's okay now. He lives in, in Belgium. But, uh, yeah, they're all the same extremes. You know, they're just like people. Wow. So would you describe what a typical day is like um, at the SOCP? What kind of field work are you all doing? What is what does your day look like and your team's days look like? Well, we're quite a big organization these days. I think we have about 140 staff sort of distributed around 10 different field locations. So, um, you know, different things going on in different places. But uh, here in Medan is where the office is in the city, is where my home is. We have uh, a quarantine center, which is about 50, min- 50 minutes drive away. Uh, out of town. There we have right now, I think, 76 orangutans. Uh, they're mostly confiscated expats that are sort of being rehabilitated and will eventually uh, move on to the reintroduction centers for release. But we have a whole team there. Uh, we have about 15 uh, keepers, mostly from the local villages. Uh, a lot of them have been with us for a long time now. They're really sort of making careers out of it. Uh, we have a team of vets, uh, uh, you know, office staff and everything else. Um, near there, we have a thing called the orangutan haven. Over the years, like I say, most of the animals we get can be released, uh, but we have eight individuals that we'll never be able to release to the wild again. They're uh, disabled. Uh, four of them are blind because they were shot many times with an air rifle. They have pellets lodged in their eyes still. Um, but we've built uh, nine sort of man-made islands now surrounded by water, and the idea is to give those animals, uh, you know, naturalistic uh islands with vegetation and climbing ropes and all those kind of things and have visitors come and see them as well and learn about uh, some of the reasons why they're there and, and the, the fight of the wild or anything as well. But um, and occasionally with sort of film crews and things, it's COVID now, so we don't get a lot of visitors, but uh, normally uh, we have quite a few film crews and photographers and donors who want to see where their money goes. Uh, so I end up taking them out to the field to one of our reintroduction centers up in the north of Ache, which is um, you know, fly up there and then a, a one-hour drive on the road and then a couple of hours drive off-road, which is seriously fun and challenging sometimes. Um, and then, But then you're in the forest. It's one of the most beautiful locations I've ever been. A, an amazing river runs through it. We can walk across. We have otters, a group of otters that live there. And, and, and in the forest, there's a whole bunch of orangutans that used to live in the quarantine center and now live free in the forest. And it's really special to see them and sort of realize that the only reason they're out there free and living like wild orangutans again is because of all the work that the team has done to get them there. So it, it is varied, you know. So it sounds like the sort of illegal pet trade is a large part of what you all are working to uh, kind of mitigate and to rescue and, and reintroduce orangutans who've been brought into that trade. Can you talk about that a bit? I mean, what motivates yeah. the desire for an illegal, for, for a pet orangutan? Like what what's going on there? Well, yeah, I mean, as you know, I mean, these, these little infant orangutans are extremely cute. And, and it's not surprising that people do uh, have a desire to sort of pick them up and cuddle them and all that kind of stuff. But they tend to be, nobody's really going into the forest to capture, deliberately to capture infants for the pet trade. They tend to be a byproduct of forest loss. So you tend to, you find most animals uh, being kept illegally in areas where there's active deforestation going on, usually uh, 
conversion for palm oil plantations, but not always. And uh, so basically you get a big company goes into an area, they get a concession of like 15, 20,000 hectares. Uh, they start to bulldoze that and eventually burn it. And, and uh, you know, the orangutans that were living there, if they're lucky, they might find their way into some nearby forest if there is any, but that's probably already full to carrying capacity and there's only so much food to go around. So they end up starving and malnourished and, and then they're raiding farmers' crops and they get shot at uh, or they're running across this barren landscape to get from one clump of trees here to another clump of trees a kilometre over there and, and they're bumping into people with guns and machetes and they get butchered or whatever. Uh, and if there's an infant that survives that process, it's those kind of animals that end up being taken home and kept as captive. And, um, you know, I always refer to these animals as refugees, you know, because the, the definition of a refugee is somebody whose homeland is no longer available to them. And that's exactly the case with most of these uh, orangutans that we find in people's houses, refugees from forests that don't exist anymore. <laughs> Yeah, let's talk a bit more about the habitat loss. I mean, orangutans, their native home is primarily Indonesia. I know Borneo, Sumatra, that kind of Southeast Asia, that region, those islands and those forests. And would you talk a bit about what's going on as far as habitat loss, what it, the deforestation that's going on in that part of the world and um, what motivates it? Well, in Sumatra, we still have the Losa ecosystem, which is a 2.6 million hectare pretty much pristine rainforest, mostly mountains and steep, sl steep slopes and everything, so it's not really desirable for the plantation industry. And most of what is desirable, all the, all the flatland around there and on the coastal plains was converted here to rubber plantations many, many decades ago, and, and more recently, oil palm plantations in a, on a large scale. Um, but a lot of that was done historically here. So here we're more dealing with sort of you know, rogue plantations, individual wealthy, powerful people uh, nibbling away at the at the edges of what what forest is left. In Borneo, it's like traveling back in time. They're still going through this period where huge, huge swathes of forest are being converted for these plantations, like Sumatra did sort of 30, 40 years ago. Uh, so the scale of forest loss in in Borneo is is far greater than it is currently in this part of Sumatra, but you know, one of the problems we're facing here is not necessarily the loss of, you know, thousands and thousands of hectares anymore. Like I say, most of that has already been done. It's uh, the fragmentation and the carving up of the bits that remain. So, you know, even a place like the Los Aritos system, we're constantly having to battle new development projects, you know, uh, electricity schemes, uh, roads. You know, a road will cut wildlife populations in half and say, you know, if, if a species uh, requires 500 individuals for it to be genetically viable and stop preventing breeding and things like that, and then you put a road through the middle of it, you potentially make two populations that are not going to be viable and will go extinct uh, simply by cutting the population in half. So fragmentation is uh, nibbling away at the edges, and, and fragmentation of what's left is a, a major concern for us now in Sumatra. Whereas in Borneo, it's it's these huge landscapes, you know, as far as the eye can see, being bulldozed and, and burnt uh, on a regular basis. Would you speak about some of the species that are impacted by this beyond orangutans? Obviously, you're focused on orangutans, but I'm sure that you've got awareness around, you know, some of the other you know, creatures who are affected by this and plant life, too. Would you speak a bit about that? Yeah. I mean, they, these forests here are extremely uh, biodiverse. You know, there's a massive 
number of species that, that live in them, including some very iconic species like the Sumatran rhinoceros, you know, the most endangered large mammal in the world right now, with less than 100 individuals. And uh, also the Sumatran tigers and the Sumatran elephants and sunbears and tapirs and hornbills and songbirds that are being overcollected for the pet trade and all this kind of stuff. Um, so when you're protecting orangutan habitat, you're protecting a, a whole massive range of other, other species. But one of the biggest ones that concerns me right now is, is elephants. So we have, uh, the uh, Sumatra has its own subspecies of elephant, and they did traditionally uh, exist throughout the island. Uh, nowadays, uh, the main population center is in the local ecosystem up here and further north in Aceh province. There's still a few populations in the south, but it tends to be very fragmented, you know, like eight elephants over there and another 15, 100 miles over there and seven over there with no male left, you know. So those populations are pretty much doomed. But we're losing them at an alarming rate. We're losing, on average, around one a week. And there's only sort of 1,200 or so left. And I think if you do the maths, it comes out at about 25 years uh, before we see the last elephant killed. Uh, in Sumatra, and they're they're killed because their habitat has gone. So elephants, they can cross hills, they can climb hills and go down them, but they don't like to do that. Uh, they much prefer land that's sort of less than a 15% uh, slope. And of course, so does the plantation industry. So most of the land that's flat has already gone, you know, and so these elephants are forced to live at the very edge of the foothills which, where they don't like it uh, and they want to cross these flat areas to get from parts of their former range uh, on a regular basis and they bump into people and farms and farmland and, and they end up damaging it and people only have so much patience uh, and eventually they usually take things into their own hands and either you know shoot them or more often poison them or even use electric uh, electric cables to try and uh, keep them off the land and then it kills them. So, you know, it's not necessarily poaching for ivory. It's more like they're pests, you know, they're considered as, as pests. And, and orangutans have the same problem. Orangutans will, you know, they're very fond of durian fruit, uh, this spiky, big, horrible thing that's famous for its awful smell. It's actually quite nice. But, um, orangutans like that and people like to grow it. And uh, if it's near the forest edge, orangutans will appear in these trees when the fruiting season and, and people will you know, shoot and shout at them and if they've got a gun they'll shoot at them as well um, and that's when you end up with orangutans that are blind full of air rifle pellets when they've been raiding these crops uh, over and over again. The, wild, the wildlife conflict thing is it's an extremely difficult uh, issue to deal with. Yeah, it's, you know, on the one hand law enforcement should be enough uh, but law enforcement is traditionally weak here and prosecutions of people are very rare and witnesses uh, so people shooting orangutans and poisoning elephants are also few and far between. So it's not really an effective uh, deterrent uh, at the moment. And uh, we wish it was. Just that idea of these animals being pests in their own sort of habitat is um, yeah. it's kind of a heartbreaking idea. Uh, and of course, some of the people who are harming these animals are likely doing it out of maybe desperation or just not knowing what else to do. But it's really heartbreaking for those animals, I think, just to think of it that way. But that's what they've become. They've become a nuisance in an area where they used to, you know, thrive. 
Mm. Well, there is the other thing. There's a sort of a, like a, a sense of helplessness, yeah, because you, you've got these like national parks and protected areas with these big forests and wildlife and everything, and then you've got human communities living around them. And then if you look the other way, you've got a hundred miles of nothing but farm oil plantations. You know? And so, what are local villages, what are local communities supposed to do for for livelihoods? You know, they kind of they can't go into the plantations because they're well policed. And there's nothing to do there anyway. Uh, so they tend to go towards the forests for their livelihoods, and that's when you end up with all the problems. And, and it means that, you know, if you have a small bit of agricultural land and you're growing some durian on it or some sugarcane or something and the elephants trample it all, that's a major problem for you. Yeah. yeah. It really is, especially if it happens every year over and over again and the authorities are not doing anything about it. Right. Yeah. What what uh, what other recourse do they have? Um, not much. And on both sides, the animals and the humans who are caught kind of in that in that situation. Yeah. Let's talk about these plantations some more. So you've mentioned these massive plantations. You've mentioned palm oil. What what would you describe the palm oil trade and the industry and uh, sort of where do we find palm oil? Why is it so massive? And why is this part of the world sort of being overtaken by, by this production system for palm oil? Well, I don't know if you know what it looks like, but it basically looks like a palm. It's a, a tall stem with fronds coming out the top and then these fruit bunches. So it's, uh, if you look at a fruit bunch, it's about a large basketball kind of size. Uh, with uh, thousands of little fruits and they're like miniature coconuts and uh, the husk of that little fruit is full of oil uh, and the the center, the white meaty bit, uh, is like full of what they call kernel oil. Um, but it produces a, a very high high yield in terms of compared to other vegetable oil crops, it produces a much higher yield per square meter or per hectare than soya or any of the other uh, vegetable oils. You don't have to employ a lot of people. You can just let it grow and harvest it as it's produced. So it's a, it's a cash. Uh, it prints money, basically. You can sit in your office in Jakarta or in London or wherever you are and just uh, watch the money coming in. And demand is out there. You know, there's a huge global demand for vegetable oils nowadays in, in fruit, foodstuffs, in your biscuits and crackers and everything and chocolates, and but also in detergents and, and soaps and shampoos and all these different things. And, you know, people want it because it makes your chocolate just that little bit creamier or that little bit more luxurious or whatever. You don't, it's not very necessary but that's what the market demands. Um, but most of it is exported not to the West. Most of it, the biggest market still is uh, in China and India uh, and then Europe and then uh, less so in the US, which tends to rely more on soil oil, I think, on South America. Uh, but it is a big global industry and, and the players behind it are big, massive global companies. And it's not like, um, you know, I often kind of makes me laugh sometimes or cry when people say, uh, you know, why are the Indonesians chopping down their rainforest? And I think, well, they're not. You know, it's massive global corporations based in London and, and Europe and America and Australia and Malaysia, not, not Indonesian companies. Do. Uh, and even the ones that are Indonesian companies are all, of, often subsidiaries of these massive global corporations. So it's the Western corporations that are doing it and driving it. And it's because of the Western demand uh, and the demand in India and China that's uh, buying the product. Um, but it is, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of all pervasive. It's not small areas. It's not a little bit of plantation here, a little bit of palm oil over there. It's entire landscapes. You know, you can, you can drive north from Medan for about eight hours and go through almost nothing else except, uh, 
palm oil plantations, you know, all the way up the coast to nearly to Bandarache in the far north. Eight hours of straight plantation. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Very easy to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. It's massive. It's absolutely huge. Yeah. I mean, when you start to when you start to look, when you start to read labels, you see how ubiquitous it's become. I mean, even if the even if products in the U.S. or the companies in the U.S. maybe aren't the primary purchasers and developers, there's still palm oil in almost everything. And so, like you said, cakes and chocolates and candies and pres- a lot of preserved foods and also cosmetics and uh, you know skin products and lipstick and I mean mm. it's showing up everywhere. And now it starts to make sense to me a little bit more that if they need something that will create a certain you know texture or a certain kind of oiliness in a cosmetic product the cheapest option is palm so mm. it's going to mm. show up everywhere for that reason because it's so cheap to produce and it, what do you think consumers can can do to help mitigate this problem from from a consumer perspective as far as you know is is just refusing to buy anything with palm oil enough or is there more that consumers can do what kind of education do you think is important for for us to have as you know participators in a marketplace when it comes to this problem well, I think, you know, it's quite a complex issue, but, the, you know, the customer does have the ability to make choices when they're in the supermarket and they can choose to boycott uh, palm oil altogether. Uh, there's another option. The, there's a thing called a round table on sustainable palm oil. And you can argue as to the cows come home what sustainable uh, means, but it, it's an effort. It, it was an initiative that was started when WWF, I think, years ago, was complaining about palm oil and the companies like Unilever and that lot sort of said, okay, let's talk about this. Uh, and then they sort of said, well, it shouldn't be just us talking about it. It should also be the, you know, the chocolate companies that buy it and the banks that bankroll the investment and the NGOs that are out there trying to save the animals and, and the social NGOs trying to look after human rights and all those kind of things. So they invented this thing called the, the round table on sustainable palm oil to debate uh, the problems, see if there were solutions. And they <clears throat> eventually came up with um, a set of principles and criteria that if companies follow these, uh, they will then get a qualify for a certification, uh, supposedly sustainable palm oil. But it's m- much more complicated than that. Um, but I think you, you can boycott that as well. And you can just say, I don't want any palm oil. Uh, but you could also support the companies that are trying to change uh, by preferably purchasing products that do have this label on it. Um, I think if you boycotted the RSPO products as well, you kind of would be going back 20 years to nothing. And um, I think it's worth supporting the ideas that industries are starting to debate and talk to their consumers and, and other actors as well and take a bit more interest in responsibility. Um, but that's what has to happen. I think the, the, the private sector is not going to go away and the, the oil palm is not going to go away. Um, but I think that's what would need to happen. We need to have companies that historically just did whatever they wanted, uh, wherever they wanted, and nobody could do anything about it because nobody could see what was going on. Uh, but now the world is different. Now you can zoom in on Google Earth or whatever to something, you know, two square meters on the other side of the Earth and, and draw a map and put it on Facebook and share it with the world 15 times before breakfast, you know. And uh, so it's a, different, it's a different world we live in. And, and I think companies are now starting to realize that, that everything they do can be seen. And if they're breaking the law or bending the rules, uh, they can be prosecuted. And, uh, uh, the demand for their products can be impacted by global campaigns and things like that. So I think that's what we need to do. 
we need to tackle these big global corporations that have always got away with just doing whatever they wanted and um, and make them much more responsible. We have to change business as usual uh, into something completely different and make companies much more responsible for what their, their impacts on the ground. And you can do that. A, a lot of over the years, I know lots of people who've had quite success, you know, uh, writing to companies and asking where they're sourcing from and which, you know, are they involved in destruction of the lost ecosystem or some other forest somewhere else? And they sort of say, no, not as far as we're aware. And then you provide them with the evidence that they are. And then you, some of them will actually start taking action and, uh, you know, relinquishing these areas or putting uh, sanctions on the companies that are supplying them from illegal plantations and things like that. And, uh, and that's what we have to do. We have to use whatever means we can to change the behavior of these big, powerful companies that are doing all the damage. Right. And and understand that it might mean creating a bridge between what's going on now or what's gone on historically and kind of the perfect ideal situation. Because like you said, palm oil is not going to go away. It's not just going to stop. So we can't expect that that is a solution. It's more about what is the solution? How can this be done in a way where we're not destroying our environments so readily so easily with no consequences for these companies but still they're able to produce what they're going to produce because mm. that won't that just flat out won't stop i know nestle i think um kind of took on palm oil and really gave a lot of thought to how they could improve their supply chain because of uh, an action that greenpeace took they sort of all dressed up as orangutans and went into the nestle i think yeah yeah like a large nestle campus and and sort of staged uh, an orangutan die-in sort of thing. And, you know, I'd be curious to hear f- from your experience, what is the public sentiment like around uh, conservation in Indonesia? And do you think advocacy from around the world really is one of the strongest ways to raise awareness around solutions here? Or are there local programs too that are, that are gaining momentum? I think, yes, it has changed. I mean, when, when I came, when I first came here for my PhD in the mid-90s, you know, they... Um, your average Indonesian even you know, government person came from a university maybe uh, that wasn't very good. Uh, often you just pay your fees and you get you graduate. Uh, the library is full of books from the 1950s, uh, and so it's not surprising that you know sort of the governance uh, was not ideal. Um, but now we have a whole generation of uh, Indonesians that have grown up with the internet. Uh, you know, they were students when um, Sohato was overthrown and removed from power at the end of the 90s. So they know the power of speaking out and uh, public action. Uh, and a lot of these people are now uh, running their own NGOs and involved in conservation and doing an excellent job of it. Conservation here is no longer, you know, this thing where you have to have a foreigner involved. They're absolutely leading the way nowadays, uh, which is great to see. Um, but there is public sentiment too. I mean, Facebook and, and Twitter and Instagram have, have kind of changed the world yeah, in terms of uh, awareness. So there's a hell of a lot more awareness within the big cities in Jakarta and Medan here uh, of what's going on out there now. And, uh, and a lot of people are, they care about it and would like to do something about it. The problem is, what can they do? Yeah. And uh, again, you come up against uh, big business and, and powerful elites that are really deciding what happens in this country, who are deciding what goes on. And that's why we need to really change the behavior of these businesses. And I think what, what I found very interesting is that, you know, I often give talks and, and stuff around the place, and there's often a guy at the back with a suit and a tie on and puts his hand up at the end and says, well, well, Ian, you know, it's all very well saving the fluffy monkeys, but you've got to have economic development as well. And, uh, I, you know, I started to think about this, and I thought, well, hold on a minute. So is, you know, is this 
destruction, is it actually economically viable? Uh, and when you actually start looking at the numbers, you start to question whether it is. You know, I, there's this old dichotomy between, you know, you can have conservation or you can have economic development. And I'm starting to see that, you know, conservation and long-term sustainable economic development are exactly the same thing. Uh, conservation is not the same thing as trash everything you have and make as much money as quickly as possible and then go somewhere else. Uh, that's not the same thing, but conservation and long-term sustained economic development are exactly the same thing. We shouldn't be fighting economics. Economics should be on our side. Yeah, I think that's such an important idea that sustainability is not just this kind of green conservationist idea. It truly is sustainability. It's the idea that our markets will not sustain themselves as they currently are. Mm. If we deplete the possibility of growing these things by making a lot of money now, then we won't be able to make any money on these things mm. in 10 years, 20 years, because the, the entire system will just be ruined. And, you know, I, I think that's such an important idea to continue to talk about and continue to encourage more people to understand so that, you know, it, it reaches companies. So, I'd love to switch to just some of the positive aspects of your work and what you find really rewarding about it. What do you find rewarding? What drives you? Oh, that's easy. N number one is that it's not all doom and gloom. You know, we we do have occasional successes, and we we were involved a lot in uh, collating evidence and and publicising some illegal palm oil of illegally burning a place called the Triple Peaks once a few years ago to the point where the the ministry itself uh, in Jakarta sent the team down and ended up prosecuting five of these companies, and one of them got the, the biggest fine ever handed out to any concession holder in the country, which is a major achievement. They haven't paid the fine yet, which is a problem. But uh, the most rewarding thing is, is coming back to what, what I used to do, my old kind of zookeeping job, and that one-to-one -one relationship that you get with uh, some individual animals. And, and what is, you know, every time... Every time I go up to the reinstruction center in Janto and I do that two hours off road and water and then get there and go across the river and wander around in the forest and you find you bump into an orangutan at the top of the tree and it looks down at you and it couldn't care less if you were there or not. Yeah. And, and that's an animal that sort of maybe six, seven years ago, we took from somebody's backyard with a chain around his neck and maggots and elephant wounds and, and fungus all over its skin and pitiful crying, terrified condition. And there you see it up in the top of the trees there behaving like a wild orangutan uh, with another 40 years ahead of it and four, another three or four infants. And well, what's even more important than that is when you see one of these animals and it's, and it's carrying a young baby. And you, that baby was born and bred in the wild in Janto in a forest that 20 years ago had no orangutans in it and now has a population and it's reproducing. And that infant has never known human contact and hopefully never will uh, and these animals are the founders of a brand new wild population of their species they're contributing hugely to the future survival of their species simply by being there and um, realizing that it's all because of all the work of myself and the whole team uh, right from the day they were confiscated the vet teams that took care of them the keepers the people who drove them from to be the whole team has contributed to those animals being there in that forest and founding a new wild population. All that hard work, all those stupid meetings, proposals, reports, and all the other stuff that everybody else does it is worth it for special moments like that. And, and, and you never cease to get a kick out of it. Like I say, I've worked with a lot of orangutans now for quite a long time, but it still blows me away, you know, almost brings you to tears when you see things like that. 
Perfect. Uh, for just a couple of final questions. And the first I'd love to ask is if you had one message that you wished that more people around the world understood about orangutans specifically, uh, what would it be? I mean, I, I think I think it's important to realize that that everything is connected. And people always say, like, you know, what's so if you lose orangutans from the forest, uh, what difference does it make? Well, I mean, firstly, you've got to realize that the reason the forest is like it is is because there are species like orangutans there. The orangutans are recreating soil all the time. Um, but you would have species. You would have different species in the forest. So some of the species that rely on orangutans to dispersal wouldn't be there, and that, and that might include a cure for cancer. It might include a cure for COVID. We don't know. But most importantly, if the orangutans are not here anymore, it's probably because the forest is gone. You know, you can make a bit of money for a few decades, but the long-term economic potential for a province like Aceh, uh, without the local ecosystems, uh, devastated and without it. And the Loiser ecosystem can, includes, you know, enough forest and trees, too, that, you know, the world environment is impacted on a scale that much, too. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. they, uh, another thing about Indonesia is that a lot of, a lot of orangutan habitat here, here and especially in Borneo is peat swamp forest. And peat is essentially carbon. Yeah? It's all of the insects and leaves and, that fall off the trees. And, and the, the amounts of carbon locked up in these peat swamps is vast. Uh, I'm a bit out of date, but Indonesia has 56% of all the world's tropical peatland, and locked up in tropical peatlands is between four and 16 times the amount of carbon that's in the atmosphere today. Wow. So, yeah, you, you lose these peat swamp forests, the main orangutan habitat in Indonesia, and you have devastating impacts for people everywhere on the planet. There's no getting away, there's no getting away from it. You know? it's, uh, it's, it's essential to keep these places. Yeah. And my final question is, you know, if there's one thing you wish that more people understood about their power to impact these problems and sort of their ability to make uh, to make positive change, what would it be? I think it's, it's, it's basically do what you can. Um, you do what you can. And some people are so enthusiastic and, and, and diligent at writing to companies and questioning them and getting to, you know, making them kind of change uh, what they're doing. Other people prefer to just use their consumer power. Uh, and selectively, you know, choose products without palm oil, or, or choose the sustainable ones from the better companies. Uh, as I said, the, the future of all of this stuff is in the hands of the private sector, really, and we really need to get big companies to change the way they they operate. But they won't do that unless they're forced to. So anything we can do to sort of pressure big companies to change the way that they behave is something that we really need to be doing as soon as, as soon as possible. The other other people, you know, have done a lot simply by sharing and liking stuff on Twitter. I mean, you often wonder whether it makes any difference, but I've been into editors' offices in major newspapers, and they all have this ticker board at the front, uh, and they're clicking off, you know, the numbers of uh, the number that each article of, of likes and shares and all this stuff are getting, and, and based on that, they'll write another article about the same subject. And so you can influence what the media is putting out there by sharing all this stuff on, and, and clicking and liking and, and all that kind of stuff. So it can make a difference. And also things like petitions. You know, when you get half a million people signing a petition, somebody in government somewhere gets to hear about that and people start picking up the phone uh, and making calls and, and sending teams down to investigate. And, and so it does all add up. You know, the worst thing to do is nothing. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, thank you so much for your time, for your you know insight. Uh, I think where you sit, you know, being on really on the ground in uh, in this in this place specifically, I think a lot of people don't hear much about Indonesia and the specifics involved, and maybe don't even know that orangutans are native to this part of the world. And so, you know, I think your point of view is really important, and um, and we really appreciate it. And the the other the last point though is that even though you are so long away, you know, what you do in your, in your daily life, what you buy, and everything else has a massive impact on what goes on here. So please try and remember that. Did you know that there are only three species of orangutan and that all three are found only in Indonesia and in neighboring Malaysia? All three species are also critically endangered. And you may still be wondering, why does protecting orangutans matter for me, for us? which is our first takeaway for today's episode. These are what we call our changemakers, new ideas that can change our understanding and change our world. So changemaker number one, protecting wildlife protects us. Ian raised this point toward the end of our conversation. Why do orangutans matter? And his answer was so clear and enlightening, I think. If we lose orangutans, it probably means that we've lost the forests they live in in Indonesia and Malaysia, which is a huge deal. The forests in Indonesia that many orangutans call home are part of the Loiser ecosystem on the island of Sumatra. And although it's not as well known as the Amazon rainforest, it still plays a crucial role in supplying the Earth's oxygen and providing habitats to rare species like the Sumatran tiger, Sumatran elephant and rhino, and of course the orangutan. If we lose these forests, we're disrupting the global carbon balance even further. By protecting these species, we are protecting ourselves. Changemaker number two, we can take what we have, rethink it, and do better. This is similar to the plastic conversation we had with Emma, a final straw, one of our first guests. Emma said something I'll never forget. Plastic, in general, is not the problem. It's how we use it. Disposable plastic is the real problem. Palm oil doesn't have to be a problem. Unsustainable palm oil is the true problem. We don't have to destroy habitats to get what we need. And we also don't have to end palm oil production overnight to fix this. And we probably can't with so many companies purchasing and using this product around the world. There are success stories of major brands like Starbucks, Pepsi, McDonald's, and others who have listened to consumer calls for more visible action on sustainable palm oil and on better labeling. Starbucks made commitments to move to using fully sustainable palm oil in their products globally by the end of 2020. They didn't reach this mark, though, and the reason why is interesting. Starbucks listed low supply and demand of certified palm oil as a major barrier to reaching their goals for 2020. In other words, consumers aren't demanding certified palm oil enough to cause suppliers to create more of it. So let's change that. Let's level up our awareness and our expectations of organizations on a global scale so that that supply grows to meet the demand, so that certified sustainable palm oil is the norm rather than the exception. I personally have chosen to avoid palm oil as much as possible in everything I buy until I can be confident that the products I'm purchasing are certified sustainable and are not causing harm in Southeast Asia. 
I want to see something on the label of every product that contains palm oil, making it clear to me what my relationship to that product and to that supply is as a consumer. The more awareness we raise around this conversation, the better labeling we'll get, the better certification and visibility into the certification process we'll get, and the better our options will be. And changemaker number three, you are shaping the world every day, whether you acknowledge it or not. Ian closed by reminding us that what we do, what we buy, and how we behave impacts things on the ground around the world, and definitely where he is in the forests of Sumatra. The question we get to ask ourselves is what kind of impact do we want to have? Impact by default, where we haven't made any kind of commitments or choices around the impact that we're making, and we're not aware of the impact that we're having. Or an intentional impact, which comes from awareness, and which reflects our values, and reflects the world that we want to be part of. Purchases made every day in supermarkets from Florida to Iowa to California directly affect people, animals, and nature in Indonesia and around the world. So what kind of impact do we want to have? Here's what you can do today. You can write to the companies that you purchase from. Learn more about their sustainability practices. You'd be surprised at how often you'll actually get a response and get some data, maybe, that you weren't expecting to get. Check out the Roundtable for Sustainable Palm Oil database on their website, which we'll post on today's episode page, to see which of the companies you buy from have signed on to this agreement and which ones haven't. Reach out to the ones who haven't. Ask them why they haven't made this commitment. And educate yourself about palm oil labeling, what it means, and how that can get better, too. You can also limit your exposure to palm oil by either boycotting it altogether if that feels right for you, or choosing to only support sustainable palm oil and products with sustainable palm oil. We must make it clear to companies that we won't support the unsustainable production of this key global product which is in so much of what we buy. Our challenge for today's episode is all about increasing your awareness around what's in the products you buy. For the next two weeks, we want you to read the label of every product you purchase. Whether you purchase online or in the store, you can always find the ingredients list. It's required. Become more aware of the ingredients that are added to your food and household products. Understand what those ingredients mean. If you don't recognize something or you don't know what it is, look it up. Take some time to grow your awareness around what's going into the products we buy, and let that increase your understanding of what it means as far as the impact that you're having. If you'd like to support the SOCP, Ian's organization, you can visit their website at sumatranorangutan.org to learn more about the work that they're doing, to donate to their organization, to support what they're doing, and to explore adoption and sponsorship programs, which directly support the SOCP's care for injured orangutans. I'm always amazed at the greater number of opportunities that we find to make an impact just with simple daily choices. Just by going about our daily lives, we're either creating solutions or problems. Let's all become part of the lifestyle revolution we heard our recent guest Natalie of One Million Women speak about, so that every day is a statement about who we are, who we want to be, a demonstration of our values, and so that every choice is a step toward the world that we wish we lived in now. 
That's the choice that we have every day and the power that's in our hands. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's episode and you want to hear more, be sure to subscribe to our show and leave a rating and review to help spread the word. Share our show with anyone you think would be inspired by our guests and the stories that we tell. Tune in for our next episode in two weeks, where we'll speak with Keegan Kuhn, co-director and co-producer of the Netflix documentary Cowspiracy, which shook the environmental world when it was released. It's a big conversation, and we're really excited to share it with you and get your thoughts. Thanks again, and until next time.